Okay. I want to continue along the lines that I was speaking about last week, which is partnering with the heart of God. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think it, it fits well uh, with this whole idea, you know, beginning next week that we're going to start to fast. And our whole fast is saying, God, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, I touched base uh, just real quickly. Uh, Genesis 18, we talked about Abraham. Uh, when, the, when the Lord said to Abraham, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And then he shared with Abraham that he had heard the, heard the cry that was coming up against Sodom and Gomorrah and that he was going to see if it was true. And if so, he was going to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah. And then in Genesis, for the first time, we see Abraham steps into the gap and acts as the intercessor and starts saying, God, you know, would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Far be it from you to destroy the righteous with the wicked. So we see this, the law of first mention, and Abraham in Genesis stepping into the place of the intercessor. We talked about, uh, you know, Ezekiel chapter 22. God said, I sought for a man among them who would make up a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. Verse 31, it says, therefore... I've poured out my indignation on them, and God brought judgment. So he was looking for a man. It's important that we understand theologically that God has given, you know, the heavens, even the heaven of heavens are the Lord's, it says in Psalms, but the earth he's given to the sons of men. He's given the earth to man to steward, so he does nothing in the earth but through a man because that's how he chose to do it. In his sovereignty, he chose to give it to man. So when he wants to accomplish something, something in the earth, he looks for a man to bring forth his purposes. And we know from Isaiah 59 that when he looked and saw that there was no intercessor, and he wondered that there was no intercessor, therefore says his own arm brought forth salvation. So you want to know why Christ had to become a man and come into the earth? The Son of God, God himself, took on flesh and came in to be our savior because he had to accomplish something on earth that only could happen through man. And when there was no man, because we've all sinned and fallen short, God himself took on flesh and, and became the ultimate intercessor, the savior, the Messiah. Okay. I touched on Micah 6.8. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. We know God wants us to stand in that place of mercy. That's, that's our role, to stand, to be salt and light on the earth and, and to call forth for his, his, his mercy in the earth, not to partner with who? The accuser. We touched on how James and John wanted to call down fire on the Samaritan village. And he said, you don't even know what spirit you're of. Okay. Turn with me now. Now I can get to my message. <laughs> but sometimes, it's, 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 sometimes it's good to go back over, right? Because I, I, I know when I was sitting out there like all of you most of the time, sometimes you hear a great message, you go out and you're like, what, what was that? So it's good that we rehearse these things, uh, you know, and, and remind ourselves. 
Okay, turn with me to Luke chapter 11. Beginning of verse 1. Now it came to pass as he, Jesus, was praying in a certain place when he ceased that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. So we said to them, and he gave them a model for praying, not necessarily just pray these words. It's okay if you pray the words, but it was, was a sort of a model for praying. So he said to them, when you pray, start by saying, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's how we enter in before the presence of God. And then he said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So start praying for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the posture of partnering with heaven. Partnering with God that his purposes would be accomplished in the earth. He wants us to do that before we pray for other things. Like what other things? Like, let's keep going. Like give us this day our daily bread. Before you start worrying about your needs, you know, I'm short here. I have to get the rent. You know, I need a new job. I need a better job. You know, God help my business to prosper. All the things, the, the me stuff. It says that, that's, not it, it, that's secondary in the order. Our first call is to partner with the heart of God. His will be done on the earth. Does he care about your needs? Absolutely. And he says, you know, pray for your daily bread. Ask him to give you your daily bread. And then he touches on something that may actually hinder your prayers. It says, and forgive us our sins. We're asking the Lord, forgive, Lord, forgive me my sin. <laughs> Even as we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us or everyone who sins against us. So it, it's very important that we understand that there are hindrances to our prayers. And unforgiveness is a big blocker to having your prayers answered. And, um, you know, it, it's important that we understand, even as we're forgiving others, that we, uh, it's not just offenses committed against us. We have to let go offenses that happen against other people that we that we have judgments on, like, oh, that was wrong. They should have never done that. And we're starting, like, we have, to, we have to start releasing grace and mercy. We have to have the attitude of, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Because if they knew what they were doing, if they knew that this was going to cause them to spend an eternity in hell, they would never do these things. So, God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You know, it's important... We're a diverse group. We're a, a multicultural community. And we see things differently at times, you know, and we're trying to understand different people's perspectives and, and how uh, things in history have affected them. And so, you know, we've talked about, you know, issues of, of, of race and injustice and things that have happened through history. And I had to confess, and I was here, you know, and saying, you know, like, I didn't fully under get it sometimes. I didn't understand 
some of the history of the, you know, that was built into laws. Like, we all knew about slavery, but I didn't know about, um, you know, sort of the GI Bill, returning veterans coming home uh, from World War II, but that African-American veterans didn't have those same benefits. I, you know, redlining and different things that were built into the system. And so I felt bad about that, and I recognized that I'm sort of repenting on behalf of generations gone before me, like, that's wrong. But I also realized, and this is just something I feel like the Holy Spirit started, is to those who are in those affected communities, you have to be careful at that offense, that you don't take that offense, either, per, either a personal offense in that area or an historical offense that might have happened to you or your family or friends, and carry that offense. Because when you carry those offenses, you stand, it's standing in a place of judgment. So you have to start to release grace and mercy. And I recognize I'm saying that, you know, as a white person from a European background, but I care about you and I want to see God prosper you. So it's just so important <laughs> that we don't walk in offense. I can't walk in offense, you know, and I, we've talked about how offense can trip you up. And, uh, and I find it easy to forgive someone who's done something to me personally. I find it easier. But like someone does something to one of my kids or something, I'm like, whoa. <laughs> you know, when you take a different level of offense, it's like that parental, you know, whoa. And, um, but, but that's a trap too. Like we can't take the offenses. We just can't take them. It's just the trap of the enemy. It's the bait of Satan. So when we're praying, and I'm mentioning this because the prayers of the righteous availeth much. And it's not our righteousness, it's his righteousness. But when we posture our hearts before the Lord, you know, when we come to the altar with our gift, our worship, our praise, you know, it says if you have ought against anyone, forgive them. <laughs> You know, if you have to make something right with somebody, go make it right and then come back. So we don't want to hinder our prayers. Bless the Lord. So we're posturing God. Your will be done. I want to focus on God's will be done on the earth because this is a holy calling. And I know that God has called especially this church, this community, into, into partnership with him to see his plans and purposes in the earth. That's why we're a house of prayer. That's why we continually, you know, we have our Friday night encounter God service, which is, you know, it's a time to partner with God in prayer. And we ask for your will be done, especially in this region that you've given us, uh, that you've placed us in, in the greater New York City area. God, we want revival. We're, 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 we're persistently and relentlessly pursuing heaven that God would pour out revival. So turn with me to Daniel chapter 9 because it's so important how we understand the times and seasons we're in, and, we ask, and we, we ask the Lord to direct our prayers to guide us that we can say, God, what are you doing in the earth, and how do we pray accordingly? Daniel chapter 9, beginning of verse 1, I want to give you some examples of this throughout history and in the Bible. In the first year of Darius, the son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures 
according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and in ashes. So Daniel is reading the scriptures, and he's in Babylon, and he was part of the captivity that was carried out of Israel, out of Jerusalem, and into Babylon. And he recognized from reading the writings of Jeremiah, because Jeremiah kept warning Israel, you need to repent. <laughs> you know, otherwise, you know, the Babylonians going to take you captive and got to a point where it's like, listen, it's too late. Just surrender. And they wouldn't do that. And, uh, but anyway, Daniel recognized that after seven, Jeremiah prophesied that they would be carried off for 70 years and then they would return. So Daniel didn't just throw a party, say, 70 years is up, we're going back. <laughs> no, he recognized from the scriptures, and what did he do? He says, so I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting, in sackcloth and in ashes. Daniel recognized that he had a part to play in the will and purposes of God. When he recognized God said through Jeremiah the prophet that this would be the time when we go, when Israel is restored back to Jerusalem, that the captivity would end, he didn't just throw a party, he sought the Lord and said, God, he reminded God of his word. God, you said in Jeremiah that the 70 years, you know, we'd be in captive and then you'd restore us. God, that you would do it. And what did he do? If you read the scriptures, it says he repented, not Listen, Daniel, it seems, is a righteous man, a man of faith, but he repented because he, he, he understood that he wasn't just repenting on for himself, but for all of the people, his own people, his, his ancestry, those, you know, present, like he was, he was owning all of the sin of the nation, and he was repenting for it. He didn't say, well, they did it. He didn't point the finger of accusation. He owned it, and he repented. And he, and, and he was asking, God, would you fulfill your word? You said 70 years. <clears throat> and it started in motion what would happen, the decree of Cyrus and then Darius, etc. and Israel was returned and restored. Turn with me is, is another example. Acts chapter 1, beginning of verse 12. It says, then they returned... To Jerusalem, this is the disciples, they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem. They just saw Jesus ascend into heaven after the resurrection. Uh, a Sabbath, so, okay, so they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. It was Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. Eleven in all. There were twelve original apostles. Judas had already hung himself after he betrayed the Lord. It says, These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers, it's a whole crew, 
Drop down with me to uh, Acts 2, beginning of verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. So they were still in this one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them. <clears throat> and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So Christ, Jesus went to the cross. He died a horrible, horrible death. He was three days in the ground, buried, and then he rose again. He was seen by uh, Mary, Mary and uh, most of the disciples, and this is 120 at another time. And then he, he ascended. And what did the disciples do? They didn't, did they just, you know, go to the upper room and just wait? It says they were all there in one accord, in unity of purpose, and they were praying for the outpouring of this Holy Spirit. It says go tarry in Jerusalem, wait, not wait like wait around in a waiting room frustrated, that they haven't taken you in or whatever. <laughs> they were waiting in an expectation for an outpouring of the Spirit, and they continued in prayer and supplication. With one accord in one place. And then when, it, when, it, when the time, see, there's always, there's always a time in God. He does things in times and seasons. The vision awaits an appointed time. And even if it doesn't come right away, it says, wait for it. Though it tarry, wait for it, for it won't tarry beyond what? Beyond the appointed time. It's, it's so important to know that there's appointed times. may not be the time that you want, but God has an appointed time. It's an appointed time. The vision awaits an appointed time, and it won't tarry beyond that. So they were waiting. There was an appointed time. There was an appointed time for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the day of Pentecost. And when it had fully come, when the time had fully come, they were baptized and they saw. So even though the work of redemption was done, Christ died. He shed his blood. He suffered a horrible death, the remission of our sins. It says he went into the bowels of hell, took the keys from Satan, and on the third day he rose from the grave. Even though all that was accomplished... He wanted them to wait and tarry, be in prayer, seek God for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It was promised. Why did they have to pray still? This is, if God already did it, they should just, just waiting around. No, they were in one accord in prayer, seeking God. And then there was an outpouring. Intense prayer prepared the disciples' hearts and opened the windows of heaven and brought down the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. I want to touch on one more scripture along these lines. <clears throat> and this is something that hasn't happened, but I find it interesting. Turn with me to Revelation 22. Very end of the Bible. Revelation 22, beginning of verse 16. It says, <clears throat> I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. 
in verse 17 says, and the spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. And the spirit, being the Holy Spirit, says, come. But who else is saying, come? The bride, the bride of Christ, the called out ones, the church, the ecclesia. The Bible says where to stand there and say, come, Lord Jesus. We are, we are, is a promise of his return. And most of us think of it, it's almost, I think we still have a worldly mindset. It's almost terrifying. Like, I think it is, if you're not saved and just doing your thing like there's no God, then it might be terrifying to you, like the second coming. But to the church, to those who are in love, you know, to, 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 to the lovesick worshipers, those who love God, think about, you know, think about when you first fell in love with your spouse, you know. Uh, you couldn't wait to see them, right? Okay, you all married people, relax. I, <laughs> I still can't wait to see my bride. But there's something, that first love, right? The first love when you're like, oh, I can't wait to see them. We, we should have that mindset. It's like, come, Lord Jesus. You know, we love the presence of God. But this is talking about even a physical return. I mean, Christ is going to return. You know, and he, he returns, why? Not so that the earth would be destroyed to save the earth. You know, it's like not, it's not the end of the world. When Christ comes, he's actually going to save the earth from mass destruction at the hands of men whose hearts are just depraved. Because, you know, look around the world and see, see some of the things that go on. And, you know, it, there's a restraining force of the Holy Spirit. It's the church where salt and light, and it causes a restraint on evil. But when, you know, when restraints are thrown off, oh, God help us. But the church is crying out, come, Lord Jesus, because he's going, the world's not going to end. When Christ comes, it's not the end. It says he actually establishes his kingdom on earth, and the earth goes on for another thousand years, but ruled in righteousness. And the lion lays down with the lamb, and it's just, and it's amazing. Uh, so it's not something to fear, but he also wants us to enter into partnership. It's the spirit and the bride say come. So... We're, we're entering, and we're going into this fast because we want to partner with the heart of God. We want to say, God, we know some things. We know that it's your will that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. We want to see a mighty revival that leads to reformation of society, that transforms the different spheres of influences and brings a righteous influence. So that's, that's our heart's posture in this. You know, there's an election going on, and we're just going to say, God, your will be done with our nation. Raise up righteous leadership. Raise up the king that will, the president that would do your will uh, as, as best, you know, or whatever. You know, we're asking the Lord. We're not, I'm not trying to take sides, but I want God's will to be done over this nation. I'm a citizen of this country. I have a responsibility to pray for the leadership. Um, 1 Timothy 2 says, therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and givings of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, 
that we may lead a quiet and a peaceful life in godliness and reverence. You know, if you have the wrong leadership, you won't even be able to worship. Like, we, we have a great freedom of worship in this nation. And, uh, you know, we have to be diligent to, to ensure that it, it remains that way, that we can still worship God, that we don't have to hide in basements or in places to worship, which happens in other parts of the world. So we want to make sure we're, we're, we're praying for, for leaders and we're saying, God, uh, <clears throat> we want to lift up kings and all who are in authority. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. You know, and it's important. I just generally, I want to encourage all of you, pray for our, pray for leadership. You know, um, even as we've talked about the spheres of influence and, and God raising up righteous uh, influence in different spheres, whether it's business or government or education, uh, arts and entertainment, uh, media, you know, I'm sure I left something out, but <clears throat> of the diff seven different spheres, it's that people that are submitted to God would, would, would arise into places of influence that they would bring godly um, policy toward toward the areas they affect. Because when ungodly people rise into places of leadership, they push forth certain agendas that are antithetical to the Judeo-Christian values that we hold. And, you know, I mean, if, if you're involved in, like, education in New York City and different places, you can see it <laughs> with, with the things that they put forth and what they want to teach as right and wrong. Um, so so that's, that's our heart's posture in this season. Uh, turn with me, at, and, you know, even Jesus... Turn with me to Luke 22, beginning of verse 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Why was Satan asking for Peter? Satan, he's observing, you know, he's not omniscient. He doesn't know the end from the beginning. He's just a created being. But he's observing, and he could probably see that there's leadership on Peter, that Peter was outspoken. Uh, and, and so he's bringing accusation before the throne of God. Yeah, Peter's following Jesus now, but, you know, do this or do that to him, and he's going to deny him. And, uh, and, and Jesus is aware of the accusation that Satan is bringing against Peter. So what's, what's Jesus' response? He doesn't say, I knew it. Shouldn't have picked Peter. He's going to deny me. No, that was not his response. What did he say? I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith fail not. He believed in Peter. And what happens when, when, when he tells Peter this? Peter says, oh, no, Lord. Even if everybody denies you, not me. I'm willing to, you know, die and go to the grave with you, et cetera, et cetera. And Jesus is like, really? Come on. <laughs> Peter, before the, the cock crows, 
you know, three times, you know, or whatever it is, you're going to deny me three times. And he's like, no, never, you got the wrong guy. And he's like, oh, brother, I got to pray some more. <laughs> but he prays. And Peter's restored. I've preached on how Peter's restored. It's amazing story, you know, when you see, like, in John, how the other disciples rush to Jesus, and Peter's the last one to come, and, but he restores him. <clears throat> he restores Peter, because Peter had leadership on him, and listen, I say that to say, you know, people in leadership, he, the devil wants to take the leadership out, smite the shepherd, and the sheep are scattered, you know, it, it, it's, it's more effective for, God, for, for Satan to target leadership than target someone who has little influence over, uh, you know, kingdom reality. So he's just, he's just looking at where is my blow going to be the most effective. I say that to encourage you, please pray. Pray for the leadership of this church. We need your prayers. I'm flesh and blood. I'm weak. I have, ask my wife, she'll tell you. Um, pray for us. Pray for us. And, uh, and pray for leadership generally uh, because that we come under the godly influence that, you know, there are many voices, there's many competing things, you know, and Satan often comes as an angel of light trying to say, oh, doesn't this look good? And, uh, and we can be confused. Uh, but God brings clarity. He breaks through the darkness. And so it's important. You want, so we're talking about how do we pray as we are, how do we align our hearts with the heart of God? Pray for our leaders. Very important. Okay, I'm going to bring this a little bit to a close. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. We're asking God to help us to align our hearts. We know certain things. I know God, you know, there's promises of a great uh, outpouring toward the end of the age. You know, it says in Joel, it says that he'll pour out his spirit on all flesh, that your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will dream dreams, uh, we'll see visions in your uh, old men will dream dreams or vice versa. I'm forgetting. Um, the point is that there's an outpouring. And, and we know that toward the end of the age, there's a great harvest of souls that God wants to bring in. So that's a big prayer point for this church, for this community. It's like, God, we know you want to do something great. We know you want to touch this city because this city impacts the world. And if, if God, you know, touch this city, bring a revival, even the way you brought revival to, you know, in the eight, 1857 to, with the, through the uh, leadership of Jeremiah Lamphier and others, God, that there would be such an outpouring. So we want to partner with the heart of God. Uh, Romans eight twenty six says, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, he who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So the Holy Spirit inside of us wants to release these groanings, these prayers, Turn with me now to 1 Corinthians 14. 
And with this, I'm going to bring it to a close. First Corinthians 14, beginning of verse 1. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Now, get this, verse 2, we don't always focus on verse 2. I know we've, 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 we've taught a lot about prophesying, and, and all of chapter 14 talks about he who prophesies is better than he who speaks in tongues because he speaks a word of edification to the church, a word of encouragement. But I want to focus on tongues a little bit because I think it's a, not a well-understood gift, and it, I really believe it's, it's going to be an important part of us praying the will of God as we move into this next season. He who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. When you speak in tongues, in t when you speak in an unknown tongue, you're praying. You know, the Bible says, you know, our spirit is praying, but our mind is a bit unfruitful. Now, we can ask God, give us revelation, and sometimes he'll give us an impression of what we're praying about, but there's still a little bit, it's not very clear. I mean, you get an impression. I, I, I was laboring for this and praying in a tongue, you know, and I think God was moving this, but, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a faith thing, and that's okay. You're speaking mysteries of God unto God. Uh, drop down to verse 4. Who, he who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. So you're also praying for yourself, but there can be a, a strong tongue that comes on you, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a, called a spirit of intercession, and you're praying the heart of God, the will of God. Paul says, I wish all of you spoke with tongues. All of you spoke with tongues. But understand, what he's saying here is not a discount when we keep reading. He's not discounting tongues, but he's trying to say he's writing to a church and he's trying to say, you know, it's important that certain things are done in, in a corporate gathering that edifies others. Okay, so he says, but even more that you prophesied. Why? Because he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks in tongues unless that person interprets that the church may receive edification. So if we all gathered together and I just spoke up here in a tongue, everyone would look at me and they'd turn your head sideways like, what? Because you wouldn't understand what I was saying. And it really wouldn't edify a whole lot of people. But I'm not talking about gathering in a corporate setting just for, uh, you know, for edification. I'm talking about gathering in a corporate setting at times and sometimes just in your prayer closet and praying the will of God because that's what he wants us to do. Okay, jump down to uh, verse 12. I'm sorry, verse 14. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is the conclusion? Look, I'm going to pray with the spirit. I'll also pray with my understanding. I'll sing with the spirit, and I'll sing with the understanding. We should do both. We should pray with our understanding, but don't neglect this prayer language that God gives us because he prays and makes intercession for us in accordance with the will of God. 
That was Romans 8. We just read it. Verse 18, it says, I thank my God. I speak with tongues more than all of you. Paul was always speaking in tongues in his prayer closet, praying in tongues. How do I? I don't know how to pray as I ought, so let me pray in tongues. I want to encourage you. If you don't have a prayer language, <clears throat> you know, it's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And one of the evidences is speaking in tongues. Don't, I, I believe everyone can speak in tongues. If, if you ask God for that baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues, you know, some people try to say, well, to one this gift is given, to another that gift is given. I don't think this is speaking about the specific gifts of the Holy Spirit. This is a baptism in the Holy Spirit, and we can all speak with tongues. We pray, we ask the Lord. Luke chapter 11 says, if you ask him for the Holy Spirit, he's not going to give you a fisher, a stone or a rock. You know, he's going to get, how much more will your Father in heaven who loves you, you who know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your Father will give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. So, Paul was praying in tongues. This is it's such an important thing in our prayer closets, in our time. Make sure, pray with your understanding, but pray in the Spirit too. Do both. Sing, sing, sing with your understanding, but sing in the Spirit. Do both. Enter into partnership with God because the Spirit makes intercession for us According to the will of God. It's a neglected gift that I really believe that God is going to start to put an emphasis on in this time and season. So as we enter into this fast, and we don't, sometimes we run out of things to pray. You got your list? Pray for mom, dad, you know. <laughs> and you go through um, praying tongues. Let, let the Holy Spirit well up inside of you. And if you, as you give yourself to it, <clears throat> I know, I've seen it on myself, I've seen it with others, a whole spirit of intercession will come on you, a travail in the spirit. And you start to give birth to the things that God wants to do in the earth, in your realm of influence, in your sphere. God's placed us, he's established our times that we live in. He's established the borders in which we dwell. He's got plans and purposes, and he wants us to partner to see his purposes in the earth. And when we begin to pray in tongues, <clears throat> we start to align ourselves, speaking mysteries to God. He'll give, a, he'll give you understanding at times because he wants to, you know, he's just like, just like Abraham, who was a friend of God. Will I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? He'll give you illumination. Give yourself over to that. I'm going to ask the, the worship team to come up. Bless the Lord.